Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hi there, thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. My guest today is one of Australia's most celebrated and internationally respected pastry chefs. She is the queen of chocolate, the owner of Savour Chocolate and Patisserie School in Melbourne. She has represented Australia at the World Pastry Championships in Las Vegas, where she was recognised as the best in the world for her handmade chocolates, by the way. She won gold in the Pastry Olympics in Germany, has been a judge in the World Chocolate Masters in Paris, the Patisserie Grand Prix in Japan, and the World Chocolate Masters National Selections in London. And you may have seen her recently on MasterChef, challenging the contestants to recreate an amazing dessert, her cherry on top entremet. Welcome, Kirsten Tibbles. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on. So, Kirsten, before we get into all things chocolate and sweet, can you chart for us your journey to owning your own cooking school? Well, it is a long journey. I was born in Gippsland in Victoria and spent a little bit of time there. My parents were both teachers, but my dad used to teach in a schoolhouse where we he had all year levels and our house would be in front of the schoolhouse and he would have up to 13 students from probably prep to grade six and we had cows. So yeah, I probably had more of a country upbringing, if you like, more so than certainly a city upbringing. And I think that gives you a different perspective on things. You know, I wasn't very savvy when it came to public transport or, you know, even shopping options and things like that. I did start high school and became unwell. So I went very sporadically, as in probably a few weeks of the year. And for that reason, I did make lots of cakes at home and I used to sell cakes at home. So I did start a business from the age of 12, selling cakes and, you know, to friends and family. And they're mainly decorated cakes, so Mm. birthday cakes and wedding cakes and things like that. I also started doing cake decorating classes then. So that sort of started the journey, if you like, and... As soon as I possibly could, which was at the age of 15, I started a pastry chef apprenticeship. Mm. And to be honest, I haven't looked back. I've never considered anything else. So I worked as a pastry chef for five years on the Mornington Peninsula at this stage. And they were really long hours, grueling hours. So Mm. sometimes we would do 24-hour days and then we'd sleep on the floor in the office and then we'd go back into work, which was not great and we weren't very productive to be honest because we're so exhausted so I did that for five years which I feel that that was such a full-on workplace that I almost did the equivalent of double that in terms of training Mm. because I picked up so much because the hours were just so long you don't see that today no she's probably showing my age (laughs) Um, From there, I actually won a scholarship to Europe. It was the Australian Baking Scholarship Award. And that scholarship was to actually go to Germany. So I went to a trade show called EBA in Germany. And that was my first time in Europe. And I was traveling by myself. So I was very green, had no idea what was going on. But 
at the trade show, it was a real eye-opener for me because they had people demonstrating from all around the world, Hmm. you know, chocolate and techniques, and I thought, I've never seen anything like this Hmm. before. So my plan was always to go there and try to get work. So I would badger the people demonstrating for the five days that they were there (laughs) saying, I want to come and work with you in Belgium or in France. I'd say, no, no, it's not possible. But because I went there every single day, eventually I got a couple of them to cave and let me come to their workplace. So first I started in Belgium. So I worked at a place called Wittemere in Brussels, which is still there today. I visited there on a trip a few years ago, so it still looks beautiful. And that was an amazing experience. I then went to France and did a little bits and pieces in France of work experience, and that was all volunteering. And when I came back to Australia, I worked to promote a company called Calabart Chocolate in Mm -hmm. promoting their brand in Australia because it hadn't been available in Australia for some time. Mm. And then I slowly started opening the school, which is 20 years ago. So I opened the school in 2002 actually in July. So, and it's just grown from there. We went from, you know, I washed and ironed all the aprons myself. I then, we had fax machines when people would (laughs) register for classes. We didn't have any social media. So we would do brochures that we would post out to people, you know, get media and marketing. We got a big article in the Australian newspaper in their magazine lift the first week that we opened, which was brilliant for the business. Mm. So I just continued on that journey. Wow, how things have changed since then. And congratulations for the 20 years. That's quite an accomplishment to to have stayed open all this time and kept expanding. So Kirsten, who who are your guests at the school? Is it for professional bakers or is it home cooks? We get a mix of both professionals and non-professionals. I guess it's people who are wanting to increase their knowledge and be able to create beautiful cakes and pastries and chocolates. We have online classes as well as hands-on classes. Mm. Hands-on classes we only offer one to two classes a month, which fill out within hours of releasing them. The online classes, obviously suitable for anybody, anywhere in the world, anytime. So that's has a massive global audience, which is really good because it's really accessible for people, both in terms of the cost and the volume of tutorials that we have on there. Mm, I'll have to go and have a look. There are certainly a few things that I need to brush up on. So Cousin, what's different about a cooking school that's designed specifically to teach pastry and chocolate? When I'm talking, obviously, with the hands-on classes, I imagine that it's it has to be temperature controlled because of the chocolate or not? Yeah, we're temperature controlled. During winter, even, we're temperature controlled because you don't want it to be too cold or too hot. We have beautiful porcelain benches, so all our benches are stone. So things like that. I do like to have the best equipment to make the classes flow and for people to enjoy the experience, you know, Mm. with great facilities as well. Mm. I've always imagined that you have to be a particular kind of person to be a pastry chef, quite particular. Is this this true or is that just a bit of a stereotype? No, I think it's true. I think that, (laughs) well, I can speak for myself personally. I am certainly a perfectionist in everything that I do, but I like to think that I'm quite artistic and you balance that with science. Mm. So unlike normal cuisine cooking, patisserie and chocolate, 
is very, very much about the percentage of ingredients working together to achieve an amazing result. So if it's too much sugar, it has an impact. If it's too much flour, it has an impact. So it's all about the balancing. And then, of course, people eat with their eyes. So visually, you want what you're creating to look amazing. So it draws people in to either want to purchase it. For Mm. my case, it's so they want to recreate it or eat it. So it's a bit of a left brain and right brain craft then. It is a little bit, yes. And I find that I'm now a teacher and both my parents being teachers, I said, I will never be a teacher and <laughs> on full circle. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I have some fabulous old cookbooks with some very dodgy looking cakes and sweets in it from the past, particularly when it comes to decoration, as you were talking about. How have things changed both in method and presentation of, of pastry and chocolate and sweet things over the years? I think there's a lot that's changed, but there's a lot that still stays the same. I think fashion in food is like clothing. It rotates Mm. and goes but comes back. It might change slightly. I think the biggest change we've had is the moulds that we can now access for either baking or make all the flexible silica moulds, which Mm. you can make mousse cakes in. So it gives us really modern looks and feel and shape of the product, which I think is exciting. That's one of the biggest improvements in what we do. Mm. We're always looking to fine tune the recipe to ensure that it's a beautiful eating experience. So that's something I'll never stop doing where maybe traditionally companies years and years ago would have said, yep, that's perfect. Let's not change a thing. I think that's one of the things that has changed. We're always looking to elevate what we're doing. Mm. And what What's inspiring you right now? I really like looking at natural things even flora and fauna and replicating that into real life edible treats even if it's just a texture of bark or a petal I like looking at that texture and how I can integrate that and replicate it in a product that is food. Well what what about people who inspire you are there any chefs around the world or cooks around the world that inspire you? I think there's quite a few that I look up to. One is a French chef. His name is Stéphane Leroux. He's very, very quiet, very introverted. So a lot of people haven't heard of him. But for me, he is truly an artist. He's amazing at what he does. And he just elevates what he does every time. Another one who's really, really talented and very skilled is Amory Gouchon, who people might be more familiar with him because he has his own TV show. But yeah, he's incredibly talented. And we've had both of those chefs here as guest teachers at Savor. What about if I, and I I have to confess that I'm a terrible pastry cook. And the reason being that I'm just terrible at following recipes and, you know, I like to ad lib. So if I wanted to become a better sweets cook, obviously I have to learn how to follow recipes, but what's some of the essential home kitchen equipment that I could get that might help? I think a mixer makes a difference. You don't need a stand mixer. You can even get a set of hand beaters. The only thing with hand beaters is you, you're stuck. You've only got one hand. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's a great addition. I use a thermometer for a lot of different applications. So I always suggest they're not overly expensive to get a thermometer that you can get more accurate measures on temperature to, you know, get the perfect consistency and finished product. Little things that you can save money on as well, like baking mats instead of using baking paper all the time. And baking mats are brilliant if you've got 
a fan forced oven because it won't move when the fan's going where paper you obviously find yourself pinning it down with spoons so it doesn't fly out when the fan goes on Mm. so they're probably yeah my top three okay what about a couple of tips for wannabe bakers like me what are some of the most common mistakes that people make when they're baking apart from not following recipes over mixing i think that's one of the biggest things okay is over or under mixing so If you're making a chocolate mousse, for example, you fold through the cream and then you should stop mixing, but it's almost therapeutic and I can see why people would keep going. And it's the same if you're making a shortbread, for example. As soon as the flour is mixed in, you have to stop mixing, otherwise you're going to develop the gluten and they'll shrink and be tough and not as nice to eat. So, yeah, over-mixing is a big one. Hmm. So you've got to find that balance between making sure that you don't have lumps of flour or, or sugar or whatever and, and over-mixing it, find that happy point. The, the biggest thing people have lumps of is butter. Mm. People, people don't break down their butter enough because they're too impatient. So they start mixing the butter and sugar mm. and then they think, oh, that looks all right, and I'll add in <laughs> the eggs and then discover they've still got lots of butter because once you add your eggs, it's very difficult to remove those lumps of butter and smooth them out. Yeah, I've got to put my hands up for that one as well. I do I do, do that. <laughs> and, and usually my butter's too cold as well, I think. So let's talk chocolate. I know you are a very famous chocolatier. Tell us about the award that you won for your chocolate. I've won a couple of things. I've won the best chocolates in the world at the World Pastry Team Championships in Las Vegas. That is amazing. And I've also, and I've also, I represented Australia there and I represented Australia at the Pastry Olympics in Germany and I won a gold medal and I'm extremely honoured to have those accolades. And and now I've moved on to more of a mentor, mentoring, judging role in those international competitions, mm. which is exciting. I'm actually judging, I'm head judge of taste in the World Chocolate Masters in Paris in October this year, which is amazing to be asked to do that. So I'll oversee the 18 international judges and guide them through what to look for when tasting and judging each participant and ensuring that that's all going smoothly. Well, Paris and chocolate, it's like a (laughs) double pleasure, right? (laughs) Yes, the perfect combination. So are you a dark or a milk chocolate girl? I think it depends on the application. I always think you're going to say chocolate. that. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's even white chocolate. White chocolate's mm. amazing with passion fruit mm. and raspberry. That acidity and that fruit cutting through the sweetness. I think if I'm going to eat chocolate, I would eat dark. Mm-hmm. But if I'm combining chocolate with other ingredients, I'm open to all three. Okay, fair enough. So there are different grades of chocolate aren't there let's talk about those I'm guessing at the bottom is something that I don't see often these days maybe it's just been renamed but it used to be fairly common when I was growing up was compound chocolate which is it was like the default chocolate we used to use in cooking back then what is it it's it's still used and cooking chocolate that you would buy in the supermarket would be compound chocolate Mm. the problem with compound chocolate is that it's made with hydrogenated vegetable oil. So, for example, they would take palm oil, and which is a liquid, and they add hydrogen to it, which turns it from a liquid to a solid. The problem is that it, apart from eradicating the rainforest to, to plant mm. more palm, is that it makes the melting point of the fat so high that our body can't actually process the fat. 
So the fat will coat the palate and you'll know when you've eaten something and it's got a Mm. waxy feel on Mm -hmm. the palate that you've probably just eaten a trans fat. Mm. And then it's a very sticky fat and it'll, a lot of that will, not a lot, but a portion of that will go into your arteries, which will contribute to blocking your arteries. So a lot of countries actually ban trans fats, but Australia doesn't. We don't even have to label them here. So compound chocolate, I just always say, if you look at a chocolate ingredients list on a package and it states vegetable fat, Mm. I would always look for something that butter in the ingredients list. Mm -hmm. But then you can really drill down and look at percentages of cocoa as well. So, for example, if it's a dark chocolate and it's a 55% cocoa content, it means that there's 45% sugar, which sounds like a lot, but that's probably the average dark chocolate would be around 55%. Mm. And then milk chocolate would have milk powder added which has butter oil in the milk powder, which contributes to the fat content. So milk and white chocolate, because they have milk powder in them, are always softer to bite. Mm. They don't contract or set as hard and they have more sugar. White chocolate itself is usually deodorized cocoa butter. Mm. It has milk powder and sugar. So no what we call dry cocoa solids, which is a flavor component of the chocolate. Interesting. I, I, yeah. What about the countries that, that cocoa come from? Do that, you know, is, is there such thing as, you know, better, better regions for cocoa? What do you use in, in cooking if you're making a really high level chocolate dish? I use, I use a variety. I probably rotate probably about 20 different types of chocolate, which is probably not wow. like most people, of <laughs> course, but I, that's what I do for a living. And you can get Africa is the biggest producer of cocoa beans in the world. So now I think it's almost up to 80% of the world's supply of cocoa comes from Africa, which is a massive contribution to the market. And the biggest growers are Ivory Coast and then second is Ghana, Mm. which are neighbouring countries on the west coast of Africa. They produce, you know, an abundance of cocoa, really good quality, but they grade it, so it's varied grades as well. But then you can also get chocolate that is made from single-origin cocoa beans, so they might be grown in a particular country. So, for example, I can have a chocolate where the cocoa beans are grown in Madagascar. Mm. So we're not looking at the continent, more so a particular country. And that's like a good bottle of wine. It may have nuances and variances year to year based on the crop they've produced from that particular country. And like a good sommelier, can you tell which cocoa comes from which country by the taste? Yeah, you can because countries have distinctive flavour notes Mm. associated with where it's grown. So Ghana is quite fruity. You'll find that Ecuador has that intensity of cocoa, almost a bitterness of cocoa. Yeah, so there's certainly areas of the world that you pick up, but most chocolates that most people would eat are made from blended beans from all around the world. And for that reason, and that's because they have different flavour profiles in different growing regions. Hmm. It really is like wine. You're obviously an extremely talented chocolatier. I mean, you've won all these awards, but have you ever put together a combination of things in your chocolates that just didn't work, that you thought were going to be fabulous and turned out to be horrible? It's funny you ask that because I got asked by Calabar Chocolate to match 100 unusual flavours with their dark chocolate and make them balance. So the flavours were like watermelon, yoghurt, you know, curry, things that you would think, you know, garlic, 
how's that going to work? But I think every flavour can be partnered and matched. You just need to find the right recipe and application Mm. and you can make it work. So how are the curry chocolate then? Actually, that in the West Indies, that's quite common. Most chocolates are made with variances of curry. It's quite nice. It just gives you a little bit of heat and warmth Mm. in the chocolate at the back of your throat. How interesting. So, Ken, this is this is a personal question for me, but I quite often cook a, a chocolate tart and it never has that beautiful glossy sort of top. It's always kind of dull looking. What do you think that I do wrong? Is it the chocolate that I've used or I, I try to use, I usually use something from the supermarket like lint or something, but what what's that from? That is because when you pop the tart in the fridge or even if you leave it at room temperature, the fat starts to set. And if chocolate or fat sets and it's not contracted against a polished surface, it will always have a matte finish. Mm. So if you want it to be a little bit shinier, you can do things like add, in addition to your recipe, some glucose, mm. which will give you a little bit more elasticity. And it, glucose isn't overly sweet. It's 40% less sweet than normal sugar. And that will give you an element of shine, but also depends on the recipe. I like using there's a bullet cooking cream because it has half the amount of fat of normal cream. Mm. And I find I get a much shinier finish because it doesn't have as much fat in there to set. Still gives me a beautiful cut. Yeah, so th- those are the two tips I'd give you. That's a great tip. Thank you for that. Now, you've been a bit of a MasterChef regular. In fact, I, I watched your recent pressure test when you did that absolutely uh, beautiful looking, what was it called? Uh, entree on top. Yeah, entree, yeah. Gosh. What's it like being on MasterChef? You know what? I'm so honoured to be asked and to do it multiple times. You know, I feel like I'm very privileged to have that opportunity to present my work for them to recreate and is nail biting for me and it is hard because I can't really help them. I I can help them if they're all struggling with the same element, Mm. but if only one is struggling and the others are finished, Mm. I have to let it go. But I absolutely love it. That must be very hard for a teacher to have to stand back and and not uh, (laughs) help out. I have an earpiece in my ear and I hear it because they can see in the control room where I am. You know, Kirsten, back away from them. <laughs> leave them alone, back away from the bench. And I'm like, no, just let me jump in and help. Oh. Well, what's next for you and for the school, Kirsten? Next for me, I'm going to keep focusing on the online classes. We add a new tutorial every week. So that filming keeps me quite busy, but it's not just the filming, it's the development of those recipes for online classes and I like to do something right through to you know really simple muesli slices if you like through to things like the cherry on top cake where people really want to challenge themselves so yeah continuing on building that I'm also just starting out a new book Mm -hmm. and I have the Chocolate Queen, which is on SBS Food through to September. And I'm filming season three of the Chocolate Queen next month. So that's exciting. But it's another development. I'm developing about 45 recipes for that at the moment and testing them. Wow. Well, you're very busy and I'm surprised that you were able to make time to talk with me today. But thank you so much. (laughs) It's been so instructive. It's been a pleasure. And congratulations again for your 20-year anniversary. That's been a really impressive achievement. Listeners, I'll put links to Kirsten's website in the Extra Virgin show notes on the webpage. 
But that's it for this episode of Extra Virgin. Thank you as always for your company. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until we meet again, bon voyage and bon appétit.